0: The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Vinhook for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there! Hi, everyone. This is Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. The podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists. Our sponsor is ALS Goldspot Discoveries. If you don't know them, they're a technology company that believes in the power of combining expert geoscientists with data analysis and artificial intelligence. They work across commodity types, deposit styles, and data sources to solve some of the top problems in mining and mineral exploration. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. We kicked off last week by considering the human side of science. Whether you've considered the impact of parachute science or not, the conversation is well worth a listen to. This week, we get to delve into the interdependent world of geology and biology, unlocking the powers of the microbiome to influence global geochemical cycles, leave clues for mineral exploration, and provide more sustainable ways to process ores. For a global view that spans Earth's history, our first guest makes a habit of sampling Earth's extreme environments to learn about the interrelationship of microbial activities, rocks and water, exploring the interface of geologic and biotic processes which interact in ways you might not expect.
1: My name is Donato Giovannelli. I'm a professor of microbiology at the University of Naples, Federico II in Italy. I'm very fascinated by the interaction between life and our planet, the geological and the uh, abiotic spheres of our planet and with my group we're trying to understand how planet and life co-evolved over time and why this planet is still habitable after four billion years while other planets might have had life and they might have lost it so i can say that we are looking for the deep time component of interaction between life and planet but to do that we're using extreme environment as a proxy so we are chasing the interaction between microbes and geology in a diverse set of extreme environment, especially in geothermal settings. And this is because the communities, the microbial communities that are present in geothermal settings, they use compounds that are provided by the geochemistry there. And they rely on water-rock interaction to get these compounds. So given this connection, Changing geology in this place gives you b- very big change in the type of microbiology you can get. Something that on the surface de- is present, but is more influenced by the amount of carbon, the amount of light, you know, external factors that are not per se connected to the geology. So that's why we use geothermal environment preferentially.
0: How did you decide you wanted to explore this link between Earth
1: and, and the biotic? You know, uh, as a kid, I was dreaming about being an astronaut and then when i was about 13 or 14 years old my father gave me a book uh, where there was a chapter in it. it is a book by Cousteau from the 70s early 70s and was about the secret of the ocean is the name of the book and there was a chapter there showing just how little we knew about the deep sea so at the time we had two people that went down to the mariana's trench and 24 people had, had already been on the moon so i told myself well the last frontier is here on earth it's not out there so i started I started working in turban Marine Biology degree, and I eventually got a Master in Marine Biology. But whatever I was doing in Marine Biology, microbes were coming back as being one of the key factors. So I was studying, you know, immune response, and the microbiome was important. I was studying coral bleaching, and the microbes in the corals were important. I was studying carbon cycling in the ocean, and the microbes were the key component. So I told myself, well, I got to get into microbes. And, you know, microbes control biogeochemistry on this planet. But while I was studying the microbiology of some of the extreme environment for my PhD and my postdoc, I was working on deep sea hydrothermal vents, mainly mid-ocean ridges. It became apparent to me that, you know, life does not happen in a vacuum. Life happens in a tight connection with the environment and the environmental process and the biological processes interact together. So I told myself I cannot do biology without understanding a little bit of geochemistry and geology. And luckily I was involved early on in the Deep Carbon Observatory, this very large initiative funded by the Alfred Sloan Foundation. And the atmosphere was very interdisciplinary. I was sitting with volcanologists, geochemists, petrologists, noble gas geochemists. So I'm very curious and I spent a lot of time studying the graduate textbook and discussing with colleagues until I managed to pick up a little bit of the jargon of other disciplines.
0: Language is everything, right?
1: Language is everything.
0: All these words we use.
1: Like volatiles. When a speaker's yeah. biology, think about very different things that deeper geoscientists think, like mantle people. The chloride can be considered volatiles. And yeah. while for biologists, volatiles are small organic compounds and things like that so it's completely water is not a volatile for a biologist when we temper for a biologist you're talking about 200 degrees and uh, 300 bars
0: which is low low for us
1: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly but i was yeah, lucky yeah. i spent a lot of time with a lot of very good colleagues that came from other disciplines. and i became contaminated let's say so that's how i found myself right now looking at the interface between geology and biology And that's why I'm talking with you now from a car on a deep drilling site surrounded by geologists, geophysicists, petrologists trying to get about one kilometer deep into continental crust in this site.
0: I think it's hard for geologists to get their heads around the scale of how these small organisms could have an impact. How could they be enough of them to influence say, carbon or nitrogen?
1: You know, I think it's very interesting because it is surprising yet it's not. I mean, we all agree on GOE, on the great oxidation event. We all agree that the onset was microbial, you know, the, the, the evolution of oxygenic photosynthesis. And perhaps geologists understand better than biologists that just producing oxygen is not enough. You need to hide the carbon somewhere. Otherwise, you cannot increase oxygen on the planet. So you need carbon burial, you need... Subduction—you need waste to remove the carbon, otherwise it gets respired with oxygen. So that's a great example of a tiny microbes having an outsized impact on the redox of the surface of the planet, and working together with geology to alter the redox balance of the planet. And that's accepted by everyone, by biologists, by geology. Nobody's surprised about that. And yet, when you speak about other impact, there are perhaps not so well known. People uh, are mesmerized by <laughs> the fact that you know. Think about. The evolution of plants soil uh, plants and their roots and microbes in the roots and now this may have impacted silicate weathering over time think about sulfate reducers in the sediment of the ocean And production of pyrite, which has a major impact on the redox processes of subduction zone and magma formation and ore deposits, you know, ore formation. You know, sulfur is key for concentrating all the metal. Think about methanogenesis and early climate on the planet without metal production, mainly biological. During faint uh, young sun, we would not have a habitable planet. You know, there are countless of examples we can make of the impact that biology has had on the geology. I think one of the key aspects that people don't realize is just how much this is a two-way street. Like, for a very long time, we've been discussing geology as something that the planet does, and biology is something that just keeps up and adapts to the geology, to the changing geology. Absolutely. That's the framework. Yeah, but that's not the case. I mean, we know that's not the case. Carbonate precipitation by photosynthetic organisms changed volcanism and changed plate tectonic because of the amount of carbonate we bring into subduction because of wet volcanism. Uh, GOE exploded the diversity of minerals on this planet. and wrote that more than half of the 5,000 minerals are biologically in origin when we are organized. They will not be here without biology. So it's, it's a lot of this street. So going from the
0: the big scale back to your work in extreme environments, I think the first I knew about anything along the, these lines was some sampling that was done in Champagne Pool in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Of course, we take geologists to Champagne Pool because there's high levels of gold, arsenic, and antimony in those layers along the edge of the pool. But then I read at some point, you know, somebody doing other work and yeah, of course, there's biofilm there so let's talk specifically about hot springs and and what you find
1: you know uh, i love hot spring exactly for what you were describing there you know you can traverse a series of hot spring in a volcanic area and change the concentration of different trace elements by order of magnitudes just because of the different water-rock interaction, the geochemistry supporting water-rock interaction of the different rocks the fluids are interacting with at that. So you can move from one side to the other a place and have four order of magnitude change in dissolved copper or four order of magnitude change in molybdenum with respect to tungsten or to nickel. And the surprising fact about biology in general, but especially microbes in hot spring and extreme environment, is just how much of the periodic table they are able to interact with. And you hear a lot on TV and between colleagues speaking about biodiversity. And in general, when people use the word biodiversity, they refer to the diversity of plants and animals that are present in a certain place. Metabolically speaking, eukaryotes, which are plants and animals, are boring. Only either, yeah, we (laughs) breathe glucose with oxygen or we make photosynthesis using light water and CO2. Nothing else. Microbes instead they respire nitrate, sulfur, iron. They can respire calcopirite. They can respire tellurate, selenate, uranate, uh, arsenate. You know they, they can cycle so many elements on the periodic table, which is uh, remarkable. So I think we should re- use biodiversity to refer more to the microbial world because those are really diverse compared to everything else. Everything else is diversity of shape and size more than of function. Now, uh, it's incredible also because when we go to these pools, we try to get DNA out of the environmental sample. We collect fluids, Mm -hmm. we collect sediments, we collect rocks, mineral, encrustation, be either carbonate or silica, sinter, whatever is around there. And we try to extract DNA from these environmental samples, then we sequence the DNA, we try to understand uh, what type of microbes are there and what genes do they have. So if they had the gene to use sulfur, what type of sulfur is sulfide oxidation or thiosulfate disproportionation and so on. We can tell a great deal about what they're doing in the environment, biogeochemically speaking, in general. But every time we sequence this DNA, 50 to 70% of the genes we find are completely unknown. They're genes, but we don't know what they do. We don't know why they're there. They're potentially interacting with the geochemistry. They're potentially interacting with the environment, but just we we, we have not understood yet. So the potential for discovery is huge. It's incredible.
0: How do you study microbes? Do you actually do any work on growing organisms in labs and kind of looking at their metabolisms?
1: I believe that to get a comprehensive picture of what microbes are doing in the environment, you need to combine you know, the sequencing and all the latest molecular biology techniques, the proteomic, the isotope tracing of their metabolism right. and incubation together with classic microbiology. Even if we know we are currently able to culture only a fraction of the total microbes in the environment, is always a comprehensive suite of analysis we need to do. And as far as I see microbiology going, a lot of the aqueous geochemistry and the mineralogy is part of microbiological data because you know once if your microbes are using and precipitating they're using iron 2 and they're precipitating ferric iron, then they're, you know, they're interacting with pyrite, they use right. elemental sulfur, they precipitate calcite. You, you, you need to know what's right. going on geochemically around your microbes. You cannot just stop at the pure microbiology like we've been doing for the past 100 years. Time to move on. Time, time to reconnect. You know, once was natural philosophy and everybody was able to move seamlessly between the abiotic and biotic world. And then we over-specialized, which is, was very good for a while. But now we need to reconnect the disciplines together things have been disconnected for a very long time now and we need to find new creative ways to get people to talk to each other we have monothematic department with monothematic university courses with monothematic phd programs with we need to reconnect
0: yep no arguments from me on that one so clearly you're you're on this deep hole right now deep drilling and so how deep are we find bacteria how deep are we finding you know elements of life so uh,
1: the reality is that we don't know we, we have found microbes as, as far as four or five kilometers deep into the crust. And we have theoretical models that show that, for example, in cold subduction zones like Mariana's and similar places, we might have condition amenable for life down to 15 or 20 kilometers. What we think is controlling microbial presence right now in the environment is temperature. The current upper limit for life in laboratory condition is 122 degrees. But we think it's more like 135 to 150 in the environment. It's a polite guess. We have some theoretical reason to think that. But in the past, we've been wrong before when we try to put an upper limit. But the reality is that we hit the limits of our techniques before we can demonstrate that there are no microbes in a certain place. And as of now, it's more difficult to prove the absence of life than to find life anywhere, which might seem counterintuitive, but it's exactly where we are right now.
0: I was going to say the sky's the limit, but we're actually it's the, it's the opposite. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you think about the sheer volume of, of crust where microbes might live and if you're thinking about the interaction between the you know the deeper earth the mantle and the surface and you have this porous layer where microbes Live and metabolize is like a giant biofilter. Everything that moves up and down through this crust in one way interacts with life. Is altered by life. Is changed by life. And so, as we, as you know, as we said before, we probably need to rewrite biology and rewrite low-temperature geochemistry in a way in which one is dia- dialoging with the other, like is happening in the real environment. You know, our books are completely separate, but life does not happen in a vacuum. There's constant interaction there.
0: What are the other environments that are key to your work? We've talked about the hot springs because that's an obvious one for us in order to
1: pause. So hot springs are a a fantastic model for us. Mud volcanoes and cold seeps on the seafloor are another great model for what we're doing. I think overall, you know, more access to deep mines and drilling sites will be also a key to understand what microbes are doing in the crust. Personally, I'm also fascinated by cold region. Uh, the arctic i also have a number of permafrost projects. we're looking for the microbial activity during the winter where we have less data that explain if microbes are active and what they are metabolizing how much greenhouse gases they're producing it's interesting because when you say extreme environments most people think about the super hot spring you know the super cold places but our definition of extreme environment in many cases is anthropocentric Anywhere human are not comfortable, that's an extreme environment. By that definition, the majority of our planet is an extreme environment. All the oceans are extreme <laughs> environment. All the crust is an extreme environment. Most of the mountain range are extreme environment. The pole region, the deserts. It's
0: true. Humans live in very small pockets, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. Of, or we use technology the to adapt to other right. pockets, you know. Right. So if we're using an anthropocentric definition of extreme environments, well, the entire planet is an extreme environment. <laughs> for the majority of it. So (laughs) bring it on. (laughs) If you think about life in a more broad sense, and for broad, you think microbial, because this planet has been microbial for 3.3 billion of years of its history, then, you know, life is well comfortable in a lot of uncomfortable (laughs) places. It's not really challenged by these places. It's thriving there.
0: What would your message be to an economic geologist what's the key message to them what do they need to know you know
1: we we, we know where the major deposits are we we'll explore them and what we're looking for right now are not major high-grade ores, but actually are the large low-grade or deposits and that's where i think there's an opportunity to interact more with the microbiologists and uh, people working on extremophiles there might be more economically viable and environmentally friendly way to interact with large scale operation for extraction compared to the classic techniques we used so far and i don't know many biologists that work for mining company at the moment but uh, i know that's 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 a niche for people to interact and you know not just from the from the environmental recovery of sites, the bioremediation of sites, even before that, for the actual prospecting and the mining of the resources and conversion of resources and so on. For example, I know a lot of my colleagues are working right now in biomining, thinking about space exploration and in-situ resource utilization for the future uh, human settlement on the Moon and Mars. We're going to need to extract metals there, and one of the best ways to do it is with microbes. So, I think we are in a point in history where there's a big opportunity of interaction between the economic uh, geologist and the biologist, which classically, you know, are disciplines that are very far apart. So, I would, I always suggest to my students to get different degrees different levels of degree like a bachelor and master and phd in different disciplines that are crossing the geos geoscience bioscience divide because in that place i think and the economics too because that's that's the place where i think there's a lot of space for great discovery for society and i think you know the 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 more we push our students to do that rather the following classic career path the better it's going to be for everybody
0: The microbial communities in our environment are sensitive to a multitude of environmental and geochemical factors. Can they be used to help find buried ore deposits? Our next guest has crossed that geoscience-bioscience divide. Bianca Lillanella-Phillips is a PhD researcher at the University of British Columbia and is studying microbial communities in soils as a potential new biogeochemical exploration tool. Tell us a bit of... How you got to be on this interface of what I would call bugs and rocks or geology and biology, which is what we're here to talk about.
2: Yeah, so I have a geology background. I did an undergraduate in geology at Queens in Kingston. And when I was looking for graduate programs, actually, I was totally interested in the oil and gas sector, actually. And I didn't even apply to UBC. I'm from Vancouver, but wasn't planning on coming back here at all.
1: And one of my
2: professors at Queens, the Lake Kirk Kaiser, he got me in touch with uh, Peter Winterburn and he said, Oh, he's looking for students to do some geochemistry projects. And I don't know, why not? You know, I'll, I'll see what projects he has available. And, and he went and listed through all of his projects, all of them geochemical in, in nature. And he started talking about microorganisms and soil and minerals. And I didn't even really know fully what he was talking about, but it really interested me. And, and he asked, he goes, So which project uh, do you want? And I said, Oh, well, the, the genomics one. And he goes, oh, no one wanted that one. <laughs> he was really shocked. He goes, I'm glad someone someone picked that because, yeah, we've had no interest, no really biological background. Again, like I said, mostly geologists by training, but I was really keen to learn. And the more I learned about microorganisms and how they shape the earth, the more intriguing the whole project became. So did you know at that point where that project was headed? I had no idea how we were even going to access information from microbes because I just didn't have the experience. And so the first year of my graduate research was really just learning about how we can actually harness information from microbes in order to do the things that we want, especially in the mineral exploration sector. And so it was a really big high learning curve for me. <laughs> right. But it started to take shape and we had some really interesting field areas. I did my field work really early on and was lucky to get that out of the way so we could focus on the lab work.
0: So it seems obvious that there are bugs in soils, but how you could even begin to understand what's there and, and how much is there.
2: So it's so interesting that you bring that up because people know, but they don't really know. And, and I think that microbes are, they're so entrenched in our daily lives when it comes to like medical things or, or your body. We know that bacteria can give you illnesses and things like that. But thinking about the environmental microbiome, is totally different, and we can't see it, of course. And so what tools can we use in order to actually gain information from soil microbes? When you think of soil, you know, dirt, minerals, depending on your level of knowledge. And, you know, I think plants get a lot of the credit for a lot of the things that we see, you know, soil and the subsurface. But really, it's, it's microbes that are doing all of these things. And I think for a long time that people had inklings of that. But only now with like DNA sequencing technologies progressing to the state that they are now, can we actually look at, you know, bacterial genomes in soil fungal genomes and actually get information about their environment from their DNA. Right. So if we take a sample of a soil
0: and, and you're doing that at a certain level in the soil, how many
2: microbes would you find? I mean, in terms of biomass, you're talking hundreds of thousands of, of cells in just a small, you know, amount of soil, maybe a gram.
0: But in terms um, of community
2: of different... Yeah, tens of thousands of unique species in a in a soil. Um, we're talking about communities that are rival our own <laughs> in terms of biomass and,
0: and density in soil. Okay. So yeah. we're actually talking about data. Yeah. Data science. Absolutely. Because how could you even begin to pick something out of tens of thousands and... How can you tell that something's unique in that massive community? Yeah. So that that is what you're working on.
2: That's what we're working on. And I think environmental microbiology is this really interesting intersection of earth science, maybe more classical microbiology, but also, like you said, data science and bioinformatics. And so it's not just about what we know. It's about how we access all that information and how we deal with large databases. We're talking about data sets, as you as you alluded to, that a person could not on their own handle and so we're talking about integrating the science with sophisticated data analysis tools and software and so it's a really interesting space because you kind of have to be an expert in all of these all of these right. areas and it it takes a lot of learning but it's also really interesting at the same time
0: and you need some awareness of the geology as
2: well Absolutely and I find it so interesting I mean I love I love earth science just generally and so getting to be in this newer field is is quite interesting I think what's really interesting, though, is coming from a geological background, you realize that ecologists and microbiologists, all this information, a lot of it's not that new. I think the technology is quite new, and what we can do with it is obviously opening up all sorts of opportunities in the the mineral space in particular. But I do think that a lot of this knowledge was just thought to be sort of black boxy, and that, oh... The, the intersection of the disciplines wasn't quite there yet. And I think that's what we're really starting to see now is geologists thinking about microbes in a way that's really productive <laughs> instead exactly. of thinking about microbes maybe at the knowledge level that was maybe ten years ago or or yeah. even more in, in some cases.
0: So the reason we're talking about microbes and soils is actually to find ore deposits. Your work is very much focused on exploration. Obviously a growing
2: growing issue in mineral exploration is that most of the unrealized resources are potentially covered under all, all sorts of materials, okay. whether that's glacial sediments, soil, gravels, for example, in, in the Atacama Desert, you have cover and you don't have any idea what's underneath. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, traditional geochemical techniques are, are not always effective at actually delineating any yeah. type of mineralization. When we're talking about tens of meters, hundreds of meters of, of cover. And so... The idea with the, the microorganisms is that they're just very, very sensitive to changes in their environment. And so we're looking at sampling surface soils like you would do in a geochemical exploration program. So we're looking at, you know, 200 grams of soil in typically like a B horizon soil, although that's just sort of the start. It's possible that there are other horizons that we might sample. I think anytime you're doing exploration, there's always a little bit that needs to be adjusted. There's no one one fits all solution, but we're we're working in the surface environment, out t- taking a sample, pretty low impact sampling, I would say as well.
0: Right. Okay. So you got the sample, you bring mm-hmm. it back. Yeah. And then what's the actual analysis?
2: Yeah. So the the first thing we're going to do is actually extract the DNA from the soil, and then that gets that gets sequenced. And so what we're looking for, and and the type of sequencing that we're doing is actually just to identify the taxonomy of the soil microbiome. So we want to know who's there and the relative abundances of those microorganisms. And then from there, when we actually use you know bioinformatics tools to do these analyses, for the R&D stage that we're at, we're looking finding differences between microorganisms that live above surface projection of mineralization compared to microorganisms that are growing in background materials. And so I think One of the important things about what I'm doing and and the first stages of of research is actually defining what that background is, which it could be true, is very true for any superficial exploration technique, is what is background? Because you don't know what anomaly, what kind of anomaly you have unless you have a good idea. And so that's something really important that we're working on right now.
0: So and the DNA extraction, you're looking at pieces of lots and lots of DNA? in my PhD, from what we've done
2: so far, a 16S amplicon sequencing of of a specific region. <laughs> yep. So nice. we're, we're so we're looking at we basically have there's a region that we look at that is highly variable and a region that is conserved. And so we look at the conserved region in order to 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 be consistently looking at the same thing. Uh, we're looking at soil bacteria,
0: but So we you need mean to know conserved, how difference... it's a part of the string, part of the DNA that yeah. stays relatively constant and then there's another part that changes. That changes. Yeah. And so, so you're we're looking, looking at a comparison between those. Yeah, but...
2: and so we want to see we're, we're basically using the DNA sequencing to create taxonomic profiles.
0: We want to know right. what's
2: there. Um, but the idea is that these communities have grown up over quite long periods of time and that they're relatively stable, I should say, although things right. are always changing depending on precipitation and temperature and, and actually how microbial communities change in response to all of these environmental factors, especially associated with climate change is, is a point of my research in my. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay
0: right talk us through an example
2: <laughs> yeah so during my masters we looked at two porphyry copper deposits in british columbia and two kimberlite deposits in the northwest territories and we had had success with with all of them but in particular i'll take you through a case with the kimberlites where we actually did experiments as well so we exposed tundra derived soils to really finely ground kimberlite materials we did that in the amount so that the concentration of elements in the soil from the kimberlite material would be reflective of what you might find out in like a like a kim train or something like that and we looked to see if there were differences in our controls compared to the amendments and we did find differences in the microbial community composition so we have certain species that actually were elevated in the amendment and then some species that were also depleted because of course mineral exploration we're looking for positive anomalies but often the you know more overlooked is the negative anomalies and so we've tried to cover all our bases there and looking right. at looking at those different expressions. And then we tried to look for those microorganisms that changed in the experiment in the field. Right.
0: So That's the key thing. That's the key what thing. We all, what we and so, all want to know is what actually happened.
2: Yeah, we do see not all of them, but some of those indicator species from the experiment actually showed up as positive or negative anomalies above our first kimberlite. And so from, from there, yeah. And from there in the first test case, we, we also did an analysis of the field samples where we, we basically assigned different groups. So we say, okay, these samples are based on, you know, drilling and surface projections. These groups are on top of mineralization and these groups are in the background. And with kimberlites, that's a little easier to do than sulfide deposits because it's, it's a lithological boundary. So we do an indicator species analysis on the field data and then we see. You know, species that are elevated right on top, right on top of the kimberlite, um, and it's it, this is, of course, the more interesting case because experiments are great, but you want to get out in the field and and see if these types of things work. And when you compare that to the geochemical signatures that we had, we had down ice anomalies, which you would expect right. from from a kimberlite deposit,
0: which is a traditional way, which of is exploring. a traditional way of
2: exploring. Um, but our microbial anomaly was right on top of the kimberlite, and we saw very clean margins. <laughs> with our anomaly, which is very interesting because that to me says, okay, well, they're responding to perhaps something else, not kimberlite material. Although if you were to do an indicator species analysis on our geochemical signature, you would find microbes likely that correlated
0: with, you know, elevated. Right. Would some of those indicators possibly show up down the train just because there was enough kimberlite material that had been moved by the glacier? So the
2: interesting thing is, yeah, you do see correlations between certain species in the soil that show up with the down ice anomalies, but we also see this very strong anomaly that's just right on top. Just on the top. And right. so that's when you're thinking, okay, it, it, maybe it's not kimberlitic material. What kinds of signals are being given off by this rock body, <laughs> you know, that are leading to this, this microbial community that's unique compared to the rest of the area? And so I think that's when... So do you have any ideas what, yeah, so what we're, is? we're With the kimberlites, we were thinking that it's it's likely a gas source, Mostly because we do have another kimberlite and that's actually hosted in Bedrock and has till on top. <laughs> and so in, in terms of likelihood, what can actually transmit through would be us. Yes. And we're also able to run another analysis. We're not looking at the whole the whole genome. We're just looking at it as an identifier, a taxonomic identifier. But you can also run certain analyses where, okay, you know, we can't you know, take this with a little bit of a grain of salt. But based on microorganisms that have been cultured in the lab, you know we know they do these things because we can see that they do. Right. We can match with a you know degree of uncertainty the the organisms that we have in our sample. If they're very related to that, oh, then they might do some of the same function. And so we can say, okay, let me see anything in our so- in our in our database that um, likes to eat methane. Right, and we can get a a. Pr- a A list of all of the indicators, all the species in our in our samples that might like to eat methane, and then we can look how they're distributed spatially in terms of their abundance over top of this mineral deposit. We're a big
0: data analysis. Yeah,
2: and we actually do see. And again, we're not saying they have the genes to do this, but similar representatives, cultured representatives, have been known to do these things. And we actually do see a correlation between our indicator species anomalies and uh, like methane eating organisms. So we think there might be
0: Is there no way interesting... to test for methane or is it too So I think
2: that's weak every... Yeah. So I think that's where and, and this is sort of early stages, but I think that the idea with the with the microbes is that we want to be looking in areas where you don't have any geochemical signal or maybe you have methane in such low concentration. That if you go out there with a tool that detects methane, which exists, that you're not going to get that signal with 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 that low. really good really good response ratio right. from that, right? Because it's the concentrations are too low. But microbes are they're just better geochemists than we are. They are super super sensitive, and they're going to respond, and they're going to change their the community composition is going to change potentially right. based on those very low concentrations of, of methane or whatever it whatever it might be. So that's the idea is when you can't detect geochemistry at surface, what do you do? <laughs> Which is a lot of times the so, case.
0: <laughs> so it's wide open still. I mean, there's just yeah. a lot of exciting work to be done. There's
2: lots of exciting work. And I think, I mean, with me doing a PhD, it was I almost felt compelled to do it just because there were so many unanswered questions from my master's research and so many interesting avenues to explore. There's a lot of fundamental experiments and fundamental research that's taking place that has Really big implications for exploration, but also has implications for bioremediation, mineral processing, all sorts of things. You know, just looking at how do bacteria respond to different minerals in soil? How do they? How do they sense? What capacity to sense do they have? Is a because you know I think it's a bit it's a bit nebulous when you think of microbes in soil because you can't see them, and I think that's sort of the gist of the issue is you can't see them, and so thinking about questions about how they interact with their environment is you got to think a little bit outside of the box. And so how does a microbe get to nutrients? If there's a sulfide there, what microorganisms are going to go toward that? Which ones are going to be repelled? How do they get to it? How do they extract nutrients? Or how do they, you know, it's, there's a lot of questions. <laughs> One of the more interesting questions that I have for, for myself, yeah. usually is, um is about databases and, and how we actually apply this because I am an applied geologist at heart. And so a lot of these ideas are, are, it's really important to have this fundamental chemistry, fundamental microbiology as sort of the, the base to which you're asking all of your more applied questions. But I'm always thinking about, you know, what are the exploration implications? And I think this is sort of future thinking here because of course we're not applying this at the broad scale yet. You know, you don't have exploration companies going out and doing this on a regular basis. But, you know, if that were to become a thing, Who's going to do that work? And so I think that uh, right now, I think training. I'm already thinking about training. Right. So how do you how do you get people in the geosciences and in the mineral exploration community in particular to actually gain this knowledge and be able to apply it in 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 that type of setting?
0: Clearly, natural communities of microbes are using sulfides and other minerals to metabolize and thrive. These have been put to good use in bioprocessing mineral deposits, and our next guest is at the forefront of that work. Barry Johnson is a professor at Bangor University in Wales, and regularly provides advice to mining companies on innovative and new approaches to processing a variety of ores. We checked in with him in the south of Spain. It's a conversation with some enlightening facts and stories. I'm intrigued to know
3: how you got down this path of
0: microbiology and mineral processing in the first place. How did you get to this point?
3: It's, it's an interesting story, I think. It goes back uh, a number of years when I was uh, an undergraduate and a new postgraduate at Spanga University in North Wales. And One of my tutors there, a guy called David Jenkins, he's the only geologist there, and he had his hankering for going underground. There weren't many caves in that area, but there were a number of ancient underground mines. So he used to go and explore. He could do those things in those days without much restriction. And he came across one. It was a fascinating one. He came back very excited. It was an old pyrite mine. Now, pyrite fool's gold is not something which we would mine today, but it was mined in the past as a source of sulphur. So it was labelled as a sulphur mine. And the Victorians used it as a source of sulphur for explosives. And then in the First World War, again, it was not actually actively worked at the end. And it was abandoned since 1918. And he found, when he went underground in this mine, usually very dry. But when he went deeper and deeper, it got moist and wet. There was a stream. And there was this curious phenomenon of what looked like life there. And not just a little bit of life, but a lot of life. In the form of, of slime and, and things we call streamers, which were sort of many cubic meters of material. So I went with him one day. I looked at this material, and my curiosity was that, what, how on earth can this amount of life exist in the dark, deep underground? You know, what is the energy source? So after doing some research, and there wasn't that much known in those days about these organisms, I came across an organism that apparently could tap the energy from, from pyrites and other sulfide minerals. Yeah. Uh, indeed this is what's happening we assumed it was an organism the, the named organism that we had at the time. uh in, in reality it wasn't and it, it took me a number of years to actually work out the organisms which were there underground and there were two new species one new genus of bacteria but essentially living on the on the rock that was there and it was the energy locked up in, in pirate so when this was uh, became apparent you know the whole idea what well, well what can we do with, with life like this? And uh, I decided to, to do my PhD on all this because it looked so interesting and novel. I found that there had been some reports of, of these organisms going back to about the 1950s. Right. Um, and all this mothiobacillus What I knew about this material is that it was basically all bacteria, that it was living in very strong acid, the water... Running through it was red because of the iron and the the low pH. And and this organism, Thibacillus ferrooxidans, was the only one at the time that was known to have this peculiar property of tapping in and breaking down sulphide minerals in acid environments. And so we started to work on this from a fundamental science point of view and also a bit on the applied side and my research grew from that. Eventually, I started talking to mining companies, and they were interested in the sort of ideas we had. And we've tapped in and developed and refined existing biotechnologies and, and thought about new biotechnologies based on this same general type of microorganism. But when I say at the time, there was just one, now there are about 30 or 40, no reason that can do this. But it's, in many ways, the, you know, names are not that important. It's what they do, particularly in application, that's industry and, and, and other people are more interested in doing. So the, the key, key, key roles they have, one is oxidizing or reducing iron, so changing the valency of iron, and the other is transforming the sulfur part of sulfide minerals to sulfuric acid, and that is a second key reaction. There are other reactions which are important as well, but they are the two main ones in mineral breakdown.
0: Right, so we're mainly talking about the breakdown of sulfide ores, effectively the, the oxidization of them.
3: Yes, and hopefully we have a chance to talk about developments which go beyond that. But this is where the application of biomining has been for the last 50 years since it was first applied in a very crude way, much more refined in many ways now. But it is targeting sulfide minerals causing their destruction. And when they're destroyed, metals are either released or exposed Copper is released, gold is exposed, which means makes them amenable to being captured, recovered.
0: My impression is, is that in some cases you would apply this to break down the rock in, in some ways, but then it goes to a secondary processing where the minerals that are now more available can be processed. Is that correct? Or is it a whole one-stop shop biomoney?
3: It, it depends on the metal. So. A metal such as copper I could also apply to, to nickel, cobalt, zinc. The microorganisms which are breaking down the minerals, destroy the minerals to the extent that these metals are, which are locked up as sulphide minerals, they become solubilized and they go into solution. So the water is essentially it's acid, it's uh, pH 1 to 2, generally sulfuric acid. The water becomes increasingly enriched with these metals, to the extent that they become amenable for ex- extracting from solution. There are various techniques that can be used for this. Um, often it's uh, extracting in a solvent and then uh, electrowinning the metals to give you very clean, grade material. Very 99.9% copper can be uh, achieved in this way. But other metals that are bioprocessed, it's not called bioleaching because the metals are not taken into solution. And that is primarily the situation with gold. Right. Which is a, a major metal that is bioprocessed. and and what happens with gold is that the ore contains very fine grained ores. This is material you'd have to use a microscope to see. The gold, which is metallic gold, is hidden or shrouded by sulphide minerals, so you can't can't get to them. So what the technology does is to use microorganisms to strip away these sulphide minerals and expose the gold. And when the gold is exposed then it can be extracted by another means. Um, the, the main chemical which has been used in the past is, is cyanide. But increasingly, cyanide is being eliminated and another more benign chemicals are being used to extract the gold. You have to strip away these sulfide minerals. In that case, it's uh, often one, a mineral called arsenopyrite. Right. you can tell from the same thing, arsenic. And that is, is an interesting one because the bugs are actually able to tolerate very high concentrations of arsenic, not like us.
0: Right. Can they do anything beneficial with respect to
3: arsenic? Yeah, I think what you can do, uh, and a lot of, of biomining is down to uh, engineering, engineering design. An example of what you can be done, I think, is something we, we published a couple of years ago, not with gold this time, but with cobalt, which is another you know very important metal yep. for modern, for modern uh, society. Um, and there's only one mine in the world that mines cobalt as the primary metal, and it's in uh, Morocco. But the mineral is very interesting because it's a mineral called scutarudite. It's a cobalt arsenide. It's a beautiful mineral. It's purple color, it's quite glorious to look at. But cobalt arsenide is not a particularly easy mineral to, to get to grips with. So, what we managed to do with that is to engineer a situation where the bacteria broke down scutarudite and released the cobalt into solution, that's conventional bioleaching. The arsenic also went into solution, but we were able to simultaneously lock up that arsenic as a secondary mineral. Right. So the arsenic came out as one mineral and went into a second mineral, which is very insoluble. Uh, it's called scotadite, which is an iron arsenate. Uh, and by doing so, we were able to eliminate a lot of the issue with arsenic. You know? But you can mobilize and then immobilize it. And in that way, you get around a lot of the problems you have, the conventional processing, which is smelting because the arsenic goes up in the chimney stack and then gets deposited in the local facility. So at least in that way, the arsenic is contained in a small volume, locked up in a new mineral, which is very inert and can be securely stored.
0: But presumably that takes longer than smelting.
3: Yeah. I mean, one of the downsides of, of bioprocessing and why it's still a niche technology is that the whole process does take longer than conventional mineral processing. So it depends what the return value of the metal is. In some cases, again, cobalt, gold, nickel to some extent, is considerable value there. And so they can be bioprocessed in a way that it takes three to five days. This is in controlled vats, controlled tanks. If the value of the metal is lower, such as copper and, and zinc, then conventionally this has been done in, in heaps. And this can take a year or so to complete the cycle. You know, having said that, it takes longer, but the investment is, is very different. And the carbon footprint, the energy demand is very, very different.
0: Much lower, I'm assuming. Because of that green credentials, do you think companies are more interested at this point in, in adopting or trying
3: these approaches? I think in, increasingly, particularly in the last year or so, the focus on, on energy and carbon is becoming more acute. and, and they're looking at the bio side of things and sort of saying yes there is there is some potential benefit there let's go with it now which maybe even 10 years ago they would have chosen to put it to one side and and stay with the existing technology of of smelting
0: right i mean because we all know smelting and it's been used for a long time and it's there and functions and yeah without motivation for change it's was certainly not going to happen so when when we're talking about all of these systems we're not just talking about one bug in in the system, presumably. I mean, are they communities of bugs that are used in the end, or do they adapt over time and create their own new community?
3: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Like I say, it, it started off with just one bug that could do this trick. And in the laboratory, you can do a lot of these mineral processing experiments with a single organism, but the reality is that... Teamwork is better than single organisms. So what we find is that in some circumstances, you get a, a team of maybe four or five major organisms in a biomining context. And these are almost like cross-feeding each other. One is supplying the, the sulfuric acid, the other is providing the iron-3. Another group are mopping up the organic materials, which do accumulate, even though you're not adding organic carbon because all this carbon is coming from the air. And then the three of them together are far more effective and robust than uh, a single organism. And then when you go to bigger operations, some of the things we call thin layer heaps, because these are very heterogeneous systems, these are huge systems, you know, kilometers, square kilometers in size, there will be a lot more biodiversity within these these heaps. But in, in tanks, where you process gold and cobalt sometimes, carries about four or five, and, and others are trivial, really, don't, not contributing much.
0: So when you're... Processing in heaps, are you seeding it, adding bacteria to begin with, and then they just take off on their own? Or do you just wait and see what happens?
3: No, that's a, that's a very good question because and it's, it's something which is debated by mining sector. Let me give you a, a, an example of what might happen. So, let's say about 18 years ago or so, we were looking at as, as a deposit in Finland, in the north of Finland, which was a black shale deposit, a polymetallic ore body And it was going to be developed into a a new mining site and it turned out to be a biomining site. So I went there with some colleagues and we did a survey of the area, all the sort of pools we could find in the soils. And what we found is that the organisms which you would be needing for biomining were already there in the north of Finland, which is very good. Apart from the fact that most of these organisms were adapted to the Finnish climate, when you make a heat operation, Particularly in this deposit, which uh, was a mineral called pyrotite. Pyrotite is much more reactive than pyrite, so it breaks down very rapidly if you have some air and water. It was breaking down so rapidly in the heaps that the temperatures, instead of being finished temperatures, uh, were sort of finished solar temperatures, so we've gone up to 80 degrees. Now, these organisms, 80 degrees, they weren't there. So the idea was, yes, they exist in nature. We know where, where to find them, but when you engineer something a bit different, then conditions change. So, yeah, there is a thought of saying, yes, when you create something like a heap where there's potential for great variability in in temperature as well as pH, you need to have as maximum diversity of the microorganisms there as possible. They'll find their own space. We don't have to worry about them once they're in. They will proliferate and and find the hot spots, the spots. But if they're not there to begin with, then you could have a bit of a problem because temperatures go up to 80 degrees and the indigenous organisms are killed
0: off. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. So adaptability, diversity, teamwork, these are all the key themes.
3: Totally, you know, you're, you're yeah. hit, the, hit the nail on the head <laughs> uh, there. That's, that's, that's
0: <laughs> I do wanna talk about what what the potential is for these technologies in mine waste. There's some key work going on globally. Uh, and much more interest in going back to the mine waste, particularly for critical minerals and, and how do we extract the value that we've already mined. So is there a role here in the mine waste business?
3: Well, absolutely. And I've been working very recently on material in, the, in Ontario, in the Sudbury area where there was extensive nickel mining and the the process of producing the nickel concentrates are left behind significant amounts of, of nickel in in the waste in the tailings waste right we working with with uh, colleagues in the university of toronto association with glencore and they uh, supplied the data uh mineralogical data and metal data and it turns out that about one percent of the material is nickel that's significant <laughs> now the neat thing is that this has already been dug out of the ground it's already been ground up. All the upfront energy-demanding work has been done. Right. So what I was, I was demonstrating in my work in Wales with this material was that you could either process it partially and recover the nickel, and in that way you would limit the acid production, or you could go to the whole oxidation process, which made it a bit more expensive to finally retreat, but it was a faster process, easier to engineer. But when we did the economics, because of the price of nickel, there was still a profit to be made, as well as the cleanup of the environment. So this was a a double benefit. You're you're recovering metal, you're cleaning what is a potentially noxious waste, uh, and at the same time, you're making profit. And there are precedents for this. And increasingly, people are looking at mine spoils, mine waste, and looking at what's still in there to see if it's recoverable.
0: Yeah. So in that situation, would you be basically using the piles as they are or taking the piles and putting them in vats or what, what would the actual process be? I
3: would suggest that they went into vats. Into Again, there's a precedent for this. There was a, a, a mine site in Uganda called Kasesi. It was a an old copper mining operation. So the mine owners did the mining, walked away at the end of the day, left behind reactive tailings, big environmental hazard. When People went in and looked at these materials, they found that there was about 1% cobalt. And cobalt seemed more valuable than nickel. So, and for 20 years ago, it wasn't as valuable as it is now. Right. So, what they did was set up a vat at the site. A company was set up called the Cobalt Mining uh, Company. And basically, they installed vats there, 1,000 cubic meter vats. There were about three or four of these. The tailings, were reprocessed biologically. Yep. Cobalt was extracted very efficiently. There was new waste being produced, but this is now inert material, which was locked up with some lime addition to produce a new waste, which is no longer hazardous at all. So this, this vast processing of the waste proved very effective.
0: Excellent. So what have we missed?
3: I think there's one area where biomining will become increasingly important, and that is for processing Ore deposits, which are buried deep underground.
0: Can we do in situ? I mean, I've learned about, you know, about in situ using chemical processes, but have not even thought about the bio approach.
3: Yeah. So the bio approach well, would be to leave the ore body in situ yep. to do all the biology that's re- required on the surface of a mine. This sort of mine may envisage would be the size of, of a football field, something like that. No bigger than that. Right. The bacteria, like the, the liquor that is required to attack and solubilize the minerals in the old body, generate it at the surface, you pump it down to where the old body is, open up channels for the liquid to flow, and there are various techniques which can be used to do this, and then the chemistry, which is all happening deep underground, would result in metals going into solution, as in conventional bioleaching, pump the new solution, which contains the metals at the surface. You reprocess the liquid after taking out the metal, say it's copper, you strip it out of the copper, the iron has to be regenerated in the oxidant form, and it's pumped back underground. And the big advantage of that is that there's no waste. You know, 99% of an ore body is waste. That's left underground. There's no disturbance of the overburden, it's less efficient in terms of metal extraction, but in terms of return, it can be a very large return.
0: So this leaves me with one last big question, which is: I mean, I think about this with other kinds of in situ mining as well, or or just any any of this work that you're involved in, and you know, bio mining. How how do you work with the public perception of it? And do you feel that there's, you know, would be concerns in local communities that you're introducing something to their environment that doesn't belong there and that they would be concerned about?
3: The answer is yes. There's always resistance to mining in whatever shape or form it takes. One of the reassurances we always make is that we are using naturally occurring microorganisms, nothing that is genetically engineered. Um, You can genetically engineer them, and maybe you could make better bug but the problem with any biomining site is that you could not contain them within that site there's always going to be the potential release one of the problems we had and i was working on a european project with this deep in city biomining process being explored and actually i missed the first consortium meeting was in germany and there was a big protest there because of the fact that we were going underground and of course the shale oil and shale gas uh industry has as, as not done us a favor here but by creating so many certainly so problems. It is essentially the same. And we were piggybacking on the fact that the industry at least knew how to do this, you know, how to so there, there was this process and, and the fear they had when they looked at our approach was that we were injecting bacteria underground which were liquefying rocks. This is the exaggeration. nothing like that is going on at all. So the fear was that this would completely destabilize you know, everything which is above and, and everything would be shaken around basically, you know, longer on a, on a stable surface, you're on, onto a jellyfied a substratum. So, this is something which requires education and just PR with the local community. And, you know, if you can convince them that, you know, nothing like this is going to go on at all, that the, the local community is going to benefit economically from having this. Biomine, which is a size, of, like say, of a football field, and once it's gone, it's, you're back to a football field, then, then things can be moved on. But the issue is, we continue to mine metals globally. Uh, no one wants to mine in their backyard. We have to convince the public that what we can do is far better, more environmentally benign, than has been done in the past. And that's where the bio side, I think, has its major strength.
0: Many thanks to Donato, Gianavelli, Bianca Lillanella Phillips, and Barry Johnson for giving us a great introduction to the powers of the microbiome and the interdependent nature of rocks and bugs. To our listeners, hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we'll delve into the fundamentals of prospecting in the modern world with a two-part series highlighting some geologists who prospect and some prospectors who do geology with stories from Canada with your host, Hallie Keeble. I'm Ann Thompson. Thanks for joining me. This is season three of Discovery to Recovery. All the episodes are available at segweb.org podcasts and most other places you get your podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG and ALS Gold Spot Discoveries on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels. This episode was produced by your host with support from our production team, Aisha Ahmed, Britt Plumel, Hallie Keeble, and Sam Weatherly. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Catch you next time.